There's uh, an old story about a woman who prayed the same prayer every morning. Lord, if you want me to witness to someone today, please give me a sign to show who it is. Apparently this went on for some time and she, she never really saw any opportunity until one day she found herself on a bus and a big burly guy sat down next to her. The bus was nearly empty and our would-be evangelist anxiously waited for her stop so she could exit. But before she could get too nervous, the guy suddenly burst into tears. I need to be saved, he cried. I'm a lost sinner and I need the Lord. Won't somebody please tell me how to be saved? So how did our friend respond? She bowed her head and she began to pray, Lord, is this a sign? (laughs) A uh, 2011 survey by George Barner revealed that while somewhat extreme, such a situation may not be too far from reality sometimes of all Protestant Americans who considered themselves active believers. Only 38% he found felt a personal responsibility for evangelism and given our natural reserve the Canadian figure may even be lower than that. A major problem is that we often simply don't feel properly equipped to reach out to others. And even when we do our efforts won't always be welcome or effective, of course. According to Pastor Rick Warren, in his sermon on taking God seriously, there are two main reasons why people don't know Jesus Christ. The first is that they have never met a Christian. The second is that they have met a Christian. So what's the answer? As someone who's wrestled with these issues in ministry in the Lower Mainland on and off for 25 years nearly now, I'm not here to offer any easy solutions today, especially on my first Sunday. Instead, I want to look at what Jesus says about reaching out in Matthew 28. And as we do that, I'd like to think about what his words may mean for us here today in early 21st century Vancouver. Now, how we say goodbye obviously varies a great deal depending on our circumstances, on what we might call the context of communication. We wouldn't sign off on a Valentine's Day card in the same way that we might close a letter to our bank manager. At least, hopefully we wouldn't. We wouldn't make the same parting speech to office colleagues at a retirement party as we might at a church social. The high school valedictorian is literally the one who says farewell on behalf of his or her class. Well, great, but she'd be unlikely to say the same things to her parents when leaving for college as to her school at the graduation ceremony. 
Having recently left my last church in Ontario just a couple of months ago, I have vivid experience of the challenges of trying to find the right words for such an occasion. But we can only imagine how Jesus is feeling as he says goodbye to his disciples because that's in one sense what he's doing, at least in earthly terms in Matthew 28. Matthew has just reported some of the dramatic events following Jesus' miraculous resurrection from the dead after he died on the cross to save us. We can read more about them in Luke, which then ends, like Mark, with a brief account of what we would now call the ascension, when when Jesus literally ascended out of our material world to spend eternity with God the Father in heaven. This last miracle is not specifically described or, or even mentioned in Matthew, but since we're told that they're all on a mountain, and chapter 28 presents Jesus' words as parting ones to his disciples, it's only natural to assume that the ascension is about to happen. And what's so important about what he says? What can we learn from it? Well, this morning as we study what has traditionally become known as the Great Commission from Matthew, I want to focus on three key truths that can hopefully shape and maybe even inspire our efforts to do what Jesus asked. Because this is a message for the whole church. They directly concern all of us. And one of the most encouraging things I have to share with you as we consider the command of Christ, the commission of Christ, and the confidence of Christ that we find in these verses, is they all begin and end with the living Son of God himself. For Jesus can and does make all things possible for us, even the most challenging ones. So let's turn to the first of these points and the command or the authority of Christ. If he really is our King, as we so often say he is, What kind of power is Jesus entitled to? Well, the clear answer from Matthew 28 is that he can and should have complete authority over the life of every single one of us. Now, here in Canada, of course, we have our own royal family. Although some might argue that they're something of a British import. I am too, so I'm not going to say anything about that. Whatever we think of the monarchy, and I've no intention of going anywhere near that general issue this morning, most of us would probably say that we have some interest in their activities. We may watch reports of royal visits on TV. We may follow the latest news about royal births or marriages. But if you asked most of us, What difference the House of Windsor makes in our everyday lives? We would probably say very little. The Queen remains Canada's formal head of state, but for the most part, our individual circumstances are hardly affected by the royal family. 
In that sense, they're a classic example of what has come to be known as a constitutional monarchy. So when we ask about Jesus' kingship, the example of the British or Canadian royal family can be misleading. We may sometimes prefer to think otherwise, but the Bible is clear that Christ's position is so very different. When I came here to preach in January, I listed just a few of Jesus' glorious names in Scripture. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He reigns in heaven now and there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was active in the creation of the whole universe and he sustains all things by his powerful word. The Bible has so many wonderful, powerful names for Christ but his position is matched by his authority. Jesus is our king but he is no constitutional monarch. Just listen to verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Not a little authority or just some but all authority and that reminds us very strongly of course of of Jesus' status as the Son of God who has now proved his divine identity by dying to save us from our sins rising from the dead ascending into heaven and sending his Holy Spirit to us so that we may enjoy his presence every single day of our lives so Jesus' last instructions to the disciples don't so much focus on themselves as on what he's calling them to do on what he's calling us to do Like a a commanding officer commissioning his troops or a head of state sending off representatives to other nations. He's giving them, he's giving us our marching orders. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. It may not always seem that way when we look at the problems in our world. But the first main message of today's gospel is that Christ is in command. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. See, he has every right to demand our best in his service. We're called to put him first in everything that we do. As we strive to be faithful, we should be ready to leave the results in his hands because Christ is in control and God orders all things for the best. It's also on the basis of Christ's command or authority that he's every right to give us the commission that we read in verses 19 to 20 to come to my next point. The commission of Christ. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Anyone with any doubts about the scope of the church's mission in this world should only consider these words, for they remind us so clearly that the Bible isn't just intended for a select few, nor is the whole gospel. 
It's not just intended for those of Christian heritage or for those who aren't part of other religions. No, the good news of Jesus Christ is for all comers. And it's literally a life or death message which he commands us to share. So whenever we try to limit the gospel in any way, however tolerant or well-meaning our motivations may be, we're selling Jesus short. We're denying the totality of his saving power on the cross. Instead, our goal, the church's goal, should be to help bring anyone and everyone who is willing to a living faith in Christ. Because that's what Jesus asks his followers through his first disciples to do. The church has a clear mission and a purpose. Every church, we have been given a great commission to spread the word anywhere and everywhere that we can find an audience. And sharing the good news about Jesus not only involves telling people the best news of all, that he died and, and rose again to save us from our sins, it not only means calling them to faith, as Jesus makes very clear in verses 19 to 20, it entails what we might call discipleship. It requires training. Now, just like evangelism, the notion of training isn't always a very popular one. I'm reminded of the old story of a, of a guy who was trying to train a new dog with very little success. He was on the verge of despair when he came across a TV evangelist and unburdened his soul to him. The evangelist suggested that if the guy left the dog with him, he would solve the problem in no time at all. So after a few days, the man returns to find out how things are going and the preacher calls the dog to give a demonstration. When he picks up a stick and throws it and says, fetch the dog takes off immediately, grabs it, and returns. When he says drop, the dog leaves the stick at his feet, and when he commands roll over, it obediently does as it's told. By this time, the, the dog's owner is understandably getting excited, and he asks if he can have a go. Sure, replies the preacher. But when the guy calls heel, he gets more than he's expecting. Instead of rushing to heal, the dog lifts one paw, places it on the man's forehead and says, I command this sickness to leave you. Another guy is alone in the midst of a big dark forest. You've probably heard this one, but I'll tell it again anyway. When he's confronted by a huge mean bear, He's totally unarmed, so he turns and runs as fast as he can. But however far he goes, he just can't escape. And eventually, when he ends up on the very edge of a steep cliff, he literally has nowhere to turn but God. His hopes are dim and his faith feels weak, but as the bear closes in on him, he gets down on his knees, throws his arms wide, and cries out, Dear God, dear God, please give me, give this bear some religion. Make him Christian Lord. Prevent him from attacking me. 
As soon as the guy says his prayers, the skies seem to darken. There's lightning in the air and the bear comes to a halt. The huge creature glances round, somewhat confused, and suddenly it too falls on its knees, crosses its paws and says, For what we're about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. Now, thankfully, Christian discipleship is not like dog or still less bear training. I don't know anything about either, by the way. It certainly shouldn't be, at least. It's one of the great privileges of the church that we are entrusted with the amazing opportunity and responsibility to nurture new believers in the life of faith. To baptize them in the name of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, which is God's name. And to share Jesus' teachings with them. The Bible doesn't tell us that anyone is saved by being baptized alone. Or that we can't be saved without it. But baptism by full immersion is the sign and seal of our membership in the church. And it's Jesus' expectation that we will practice it. The same applies to solid Christian teaching. We are to teach people to obey everything Jesus has commanded us, he says. And that's quite a lot, if you think about it. It's not enough for us to tell people about Jesus or to invite them to church or to baptize them, although they're all vitally important. We also have a duty to teach and train those whom God brings among us. To quote the Ebenezer mission statement, we have a responsibility to build as well as to win passionate, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. And there are so many ways that we can do this through biblical preaching, through Bible studies and small groups, through programs like the Alpha Course or other forms of church education, through more formal training at wonderful institutions like Regent College or Cary. But the bottom line is always the same. As we go and make disciples of all nations, our great commission from Christ calls us to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. What a privilege! What a responsibility! What a marvelous commission this is. Last but not least, as he challenges and commissions us to reach out in his name, Jesus doesn't stop there. He concludes with a marvelous message of assurance in verse 20 that we aren't called to do any of this entirely on our own. Christ is with us now. And we can have complete confidence in Christ that he will always be there for us. We all need to hear this, don't we? Especially when we think about the scale of the challenge set before us. Gospel ministry was never promised to be easy and it certainly isn't in 21st century Vancouver. According to a forum research poll reported in the National Post newspaper just a few years ago, two-thirds of Canadians still say that they believe in some kind of God, but Canada is an increasingly multi-faith 
as well as multicultural society. And the proportion of those who act on their beliefs by attending any kind of religious service continues to fall, especially among younger people. In keeping with BC generally, Vancouver is also widely recognized as one of the most secular cities in North America. When we commissioned a report from Outreach Canada based on census data from a two-kilometer radius around my old church of Holy Trinity on the corner of 12th and Hemlock, we learned that about half of our local population didn't identify themselves as Christians even by upbringing. But we could also easily work out from the numbers that actually did attend different churches that of the remaining 50%, a large majority never went anywhere near a church's doors. As any experienced pastor knows only too well, the reality is that unlike 30 or 40 years ago, in many situations we now find ourselves ministering in what we might call a post-Christian setting, where we can't assume that people even know the basics of the gospel story in my own ministry. I've come across many kids at camp, many adults elsewhere, who hardly know anything about Christianity because they've simply never had the opportunity to learn about it. At the same time, a lot of people are skeptical, aren't they? If not downright critical of the church because of all the negative things that they have heard about it or sometimes directly experienced over the years. So they're not likely to listen to what we say just because we say it. We first need to earn their trust. And that can be a long and time-consuming process. But it's not all bad news. Just because so many have stopped coming to church, that doesn't mean that they're not searching, even longing for deeper spiritual meaning in their lives. The same forum research poll confirmed that more and more Canadians are turning away from organized religion, shunning dogma and church attendance. Yet, and I quote, while just half now say they are religious, two-thirds consider themselves spiritual, and a quarter of those who profess no religion still expressly believe in God. Many of us have heard this, haven't we? People describing themselves as spiritual but not religious. I've lost count of how many times that's been said to me when preparing for funerals. Pastors get it all the time and we sometimes write it off. We sometimes turn our noses up at it, but we can also surely see this as an opportunity, not an obstacle. Because what people are so often saying when they tell you something like that is that they're still searching. They haven't found answers to life's big questions and they're looking for them. So when we consider this immediate area where Ebenezer Church is placed and has been for so long and where God is calling us to minister and reach out, there are different ways of doing that depending on where we focus. If we concentrate on the struggles or the declining number of churchgoers or the rise of alternative 
religions and spiritualities, we can so easily get discouraged, but we don't have to see things that way. When Jesus talked to his disciples in John chapter 4 about the spiritual situation in his day, when so many rejected him and his message, he didn't major on the negatives. He saw opportunities. He had just led a Samaritan woman at a well to a new kind of faith. And even in hostile territory for the gospel, he was able to say this, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. When we see people crowding into all the yoga studios or new age venues in Vancouver, we can so easily throw up our hands. But we can also see spiritually hungry people who may be looking to find lasting truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. When we read the Georgia Strait, if we ever do that, and think about all the crazy spiritualities so many Vancouverites are into, we can so easily condemn them. But wouldn't it be healthier to focus on the spiritual longing that people are trying to meet, to consider how we might help them find true satisfaction? Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest, Jesus says. And if we ever get discouraged by the scale of the task before us when we do that, Let's never forget the wonderful promise that he makes right at the end of the Great Commission to the disciples. For we can enjoy nothing less than complete confidence in Christ whenever we step out in faith in response to his calling. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I don't know about you, but I find this one of the most reassuring messages in the whole Bible. In the first instance, it's obviously intended to comfort the disciples who face the prospect of no longer seeing Jesus in person after the ascension. But it can also speak to us so deeply. The fact is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can know the presence and ministry of Christ today, encouraging us, upbuilding us, whatever life may throw at us. So as we reach out to others, we don't have to do so in our own limited strength. God is on our side. Jesus is with us. He will always be with us, even to the very end of the age. If we put all this together then, What we find in these verses is a powerful call to mission. If we ever wonder what we're here for, Matthew 28, 16 following states it very clearly. We are commissioned by Christ to minister the truth and love of Jesus to those around us. And as we do so, we can not only rest assured that he has the full command, the absolute authority to send and empower us for ministry, we can enjoy complete confidence that Christ is with us every step of the way. And that, to my mind, is one of the most important things that sets the Christian faith apart 
from any other. We don't follow the teachings of a dead prophet or any other mortal religious leader. Nor do we worship a distant God light years away from our present experience. No, in Jesus Christ we meet God in the flesh, God in person. When Jesus came to live and suffer and die to save us for our sins, he brought salvation and new life to all who come to living faith in him. And he remains present with us now by the power of the Spirit. Jesus was and is the way and the truth and the life. And when we come to him, his great commission gives us our mission mandate as God sends us out to work together to spread the gospel and make disciples of others. That's the thought I want to leave with you this morning as I begin my ministry here at Ebenezer. Jesus' great commission is for us all because we all have a part to play and that's incredibly exciting if you think about it because we never know what God has in mind when we respond in faith. The one thing of which we can be absolutely sure is that it will always be for our best and for God's glory. Let's bow our heads.